Have you ever noticed that some people are a lot happier at work than other people? Some people are just counting the days to retirement. Have you ever seen those cartoons with prisoners marking the wall on their prison cell to show how many days they've passed in this sort of misery and just counting the days till they can get out? You, you get the impression that some people are checking their retirement savings with almost that same spirit because they're so unhappy or, or bored at work. And other people look forward to retirement almost with fear, with dread, and say, I can't imagine doing anything as fulfilling as what I'm doing now at work because it's so much a part of their self-definition. How about you? When you're on your way to work, are you excited? Do you have anticipation? Or maybe, on the other hand, a little resentment? Or maybe just bored? And what do you think explains this difference? The difference between people who love their work even in an environment where things can go wrong and there may be some challenge, there may be some hardship, and people, on the other hand, who need a good stiff drink at the end of the working day. Now, maybe we can get a few things off the table. For example, some people are just apparently happier by their very nature than other people. There's a growing field of study on human happiness, and I'm not an expert in that field, but I do read a certain amount about it. And there seems to be a growing shared consensus that some people just have a higher set point of happiness. But putting that aside, if you think about even the same person over the course of a lifetime may have very different experiences of work and different levels of satisfaction from different work environments. This seems pretty important, doesn't it? If you're an adult listening to this podcast, it's likely you spend more waking hours working than any single other activity. So if your work experience is not satisfying, that's a pretty big part of your life, isn't it? And if you're a benevolent person, if you're the sort of person who would like to make the world better for fellow humans, isn't the workplace a pretty good place to start? Let me zoom out a minute to tell you about the company I work for, Intralox, I-N-T-R-A-L-O-X. Intralox is the largest subsidiary of a company named Latrum, L-A-I-T-R-A-M. And Latrum is Martial spelled backwards. Martial was the middle name of an inventor named James Martial Lapeyre, who died in 1989 and accumulated 190 U.S. patents. His range of patents was remarkable. The first was an automated shrimp peeler that made commercially peeled shrimp an affordable protein. He invented a space-saving safety stair. He invented the first digital compass that became critical for military uses and seismic exploration. He invented an optical printer that IBM and NEC later paid multi-million dollar infringement verdicts for infringing. A jet engine, methods of capturing energy from wave action. The single least sexy thing he invented was modular plastic conveyor belting. And that's what we sell at Interlox. Or at least that's how we started. We found that our business model of direct sales and high-value service, combined with a rigorous culture of continuous improvement, kept pulling us into near adjacencies that continually expanded our ability to add customer value and make money doing it. I'll go into more detail about all of that later in this podcast. And so when I say that modular plastic conveyor belting was his single least sexy invention, I should add, it turned out to be his most valuable. Have you ever been in a plant that processes chicken, beef, or pork? 
or really in any of the factories that make something or package the food that you find in a grocery store. How about a big brewery or a Coca-Cola bottler, a tire plant? What's interesting is in all these plants, at least the modern versions of them, there is very expensive capital equipment that the owners are very intent on keeping running so they can make a return on that capital investment. We don't make any of that critical equipment, but we make a critical component for the conveyors that connect all that key equipment. So if a factory or a food processing plant were a human, you could say that we at Interlox don't make the brain or the heart or the lungs or the kidneys, but we make the veins and the arteries that feed them all. And if those veins and arteries aren't working, then neither are the vital organs. So what would you do if you ran Interlox and you saw that your product was critical to preventing downtime in one of these highly automated capitalized plants? And you have a high awareness of the cost of that downtime in a modern plant. Well, here's what we did. First, Interlox went direct, meaning that we began to sell directly to the factories and their equipment making partners instead of through local distributors. That was very unusual back in 1989 for a component supplier to bypass the national distributor networks. It was high risk because these guys had a lot of channel power and still have, but it enabled Interlox to sell our value message through specialists on our own payroll who only sold our product. And after this change, our top line, our revenue really took off. It also enabled us to set up a unique service model. So we now have application specialists up to the PhD level who make sure the application is right the first time and that startup on one of these really uh, sensitive conveyors is a non-event. We have a direct toll-free number that's open 24-7 and answered by someone who has trained at least three months before eligible to take a service call. And we also maintain a lead capacity of module inventory so that if a plant is down and nothing else can get it up and running again, we can get a custom belt assembled and to the loading dock for air freight in four hours with a free belt guarantee. So that's a very expensive service model and we charge a lot for it in our belt pricing. But the cost of that service model is really low compared to the cost of downtime in plants. And that's what this model prevents. So this direct business model and the high value service apparatus also enables some pretty amazing things in terms of our ability to continue innovating, but also enables some pretty amazing things for the people who work here. Now, I'm wondering if this is the point in the podcast where some listeners may have clicked off because I'm talking about business. And there seems to be a growing notion that's prevalent in our culture that business is maybe a little suspect. There's a growing stream of people coming out of college who have a commitment to do something good, something meaningful with their lives, and that's fantastic. But too many of them think that the only way to do that is outside of business. Far too many people believe that the only people doing good are people in education or government or nonprofits. Business is, well, if it allows you to do well, it must be bad for someone else. You know, it's a, there's a limited amount of good things in the world. So if someone in business is getting more, then someone else may be losing, right? So that's why you hear people saying that successful companies need to give back as if they had extracted more than their share from some finite or limited pie that never grows. But if that's true, then how did all these good things that we enjoy in our society get here in the first place? Until very recently, humans have been really poor, living marginal, dangerous, disease-ridden lives since the species evolved. What made that change so rapidly 
and at a, a rate that's still accelerating now. People sometimes ask, what causes poverty? It's really more productive to ask, what causes wealth? Because poverty is the natural state of things until someone takes action to create surplus. So imagine a primitive society doing subsistence agriculture on some remote hillside somewhere. There are no tools of any kind, and the workday is long and unpleasant. It's better than starving, but just barely. Now imagine that one of these people has a little extra time and invents the first farm tool. Now she's a lot more productive and may even have more extra time. But in this primitive society, there's nothing interesting to do. So she decides to make even more of these tools, and she offers everyone else, what if I make these tools for you, and all I want is 1% of your yield? Everyone's suddenly a lot more productive. They give her 1% of their yield, but they now have a lot more free time to spend making their lives better in other ways. Now they have time to spend making their clothing or their housing better. This cycle can continue until someday they have wonderful medical care, great works of art, more leisure, you name it. That's exactly what happened in America. At the beginning, more than 90% of Americans were farmers. With improved tools, now under 10% of Americans have to farm. And we have more abundance in food than ever. But back to the primitive society, the original toolmaker, she got wonderfully rich, but the others got richer too. So that's the potential win-win in business. So back to interlocks. Every time we ship a conveyor belt and invoice for it, we're getting richer because we make it for less than we charge. But the customer's getting richer too because the customer's getting more value in use of that conveyor belt than the money we charge them. Otherwise, they don't buy it. So it's just like that hillside community where more abundance is being created. It's just harder to see that clearly because business in our modern society is increasingly so complicated. I want to change tack again and tell you about my story. I moved to New Orleans in 1983 and I practiced law for almost 10 years. I was a litigator. That means a courtroom attorney. I knew I wanted to be a litigator after my moot court experience in law school. We were given real situations and asked to argue in front of a mock three-judge panel. My side won, and I remember walking down the steps of Georgetown Law School half intoxicated with the notion that big money or human rights changed hands depending on arguments I had made. I felt so important, even though this case was just for practice. Later in New Orleans, practicing for real, I had something of that same adrenaline at the end of each case. Then after a few years, the adrenaline slowly subsided, and I began to be aware that litigation was a zero-sum game. What I mean by that is for my client to win, say, a million dollars, someone else had to lose it. We weren't creating a net gain. In the meantime, I'd gotten active in some philanthropic and volunteer work and had a growing sense of the sort of joy and satisfaction you can get from teamwork and being unified as a group around a shared vision. So I was getting restless in my day job. I was serving on a nonprofit board when I met Jay LaPere, the son of J.M. LaPere and the leader of Interlox and its holding company, Latrum. Jay and I could disagree and still admire each other. He told me that Latrum could use someone like me. Eventually, I applied for an open management position, and I found myself in a 90-minute interview with four executives, including Jay. Jay waited till near the end and asked only one question. He said, John, imagine you had an idea to improve the company. And I said, no, but you felt strongly about it. Convince me you're the kind of person I could trust to keep pushing it, despite whatever initial negative reaction you got from me. Now, to anyone out there listening, how could you answer that question? Just think about that for a minute.
And here's a second question for you. What do you think this question said about the company? Meaning, what kind of work environment would you expect to come into when the leader's only question is, convince me I can trust you not to be a yes man? Now, just for the sake of accuracy, 25 years later, I sometimes have to remind Jay that he treasures my disagreement. And of course, I sometimes need to be reminded that I treasure everyone else's disagreement. We're people. But that's the very reason for the question. In a world of assertive people with conviction, you can make needless mistakes if other people don't have the integrity to disagree. So the principle is real. And I can say that looking back over my 25 years in Interlox, the people I've paid the most and have elevated the most rapidly were people I could trust to say what they thought. So this principle threads through our culture. That when one of our working meetings is going well, it should be hard to tell who outranks who on the organizational chart. The leader of a good meeting here is setting the objective and then trying to make it possible for the best ideas to win objectively, meaning not by decisions depending on emotions or someone's status or who's the most assertive. That's the origin of what I'll sometimes call our challenge culture, a culture that promotes high levels of objectivity and allows each individual to discover her highest and best use, have influence, and get rewarded. So this, what you just heard, is the basic introduction to a series of podcasts. They're going to talk about organizational culture, personal satisfaction and fulfillment and effectiveness at work, and leadership.